0: turning our backs on the poor, ostracizing the marginalized um, in the name of Jesus, because we've let politicians come in and and hoodwink us or manipulate us or exploit us into into supporting things that are wholly
1: antichrist. This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia. Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia, first-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We also want to give a special shout-out to some of our podcast listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Cindy Fulton Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF Trump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee School of Theology Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the Center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Zach Hunt. He is a writer with his works being featured in Relevant Magazine, Christianity Today, Huffington Post, and Red Letter Christians. He is also the author of Unraptured, How End Times Theology Gets It Wrong. Zach, thank you for rejoining the conversation.
0: Thank you for having me. It's good to be back.
1: Okay, the most pressing question. Matthew Paul Turner, friend of the program and a recent interview with me, said that he doesn't know of another person that loves meat, as much as you do, can you confirm or deny that statement?
0: That's probably true. Um, I'm trying to think of anyone that that might. I have a shirt that just says "meet meat, repeat" um, from, from Andrew Zimmern. Um, I, you know, I'm trying to branch out into vegetables a little bit so I don't die at you know 41. Um, my wife has convinced me to uh, that being a parent long term is, is a good idea instead of having a heart attack in your middle age. Um, so I, I have branched out a little bit, um, you know, not too much. I don't want anybody thinking I'm a vegetarian um, and looking down on me for that. But um, no, I, I do. I, I I like eating new and different foods. But, you know, with the meat, I, I barbecue is my love language. I, I like making food for people, um, you know, specifically barbecue. And so if there's a new meat to try or a new way to cook it, then um, you'll find me somewhere uh, right there in the middle of it.
1: Well, let's go there to warm up for this very serious conversation. I want to uh, put you through a gauntlet of barbecue trivia. Uh, so some of this might be fact-based while other questions might be opinion-based uh, that oh, I get right. to determine ultimately if you're right or wrong. Um,
0: <laughs> Sounds good.
1: All right. So uh, question number one, true or false? People from New York often refer to having a barbecue, but what they mean is any old thing that can be cooked on a grill, such as a hamburger.
0: Oh, that's absolutely true. Um, we lived in Connecticut. So we lived in, I'm, I'm born and raised in Nashville. We moved to Memphis um, right after college. My wife did re- uh, her medical school there and then she did her residency in Connecticut. And I still remember the first time that we went to a barbecue as um, so we just moved from Memphis. And I was really excited. I was like, oh, awesome, you know, because in Memphis and, you know, usually in Nashville too, you know, barbecue means, you know, pulled pork, ribs, you know, something like that. And we got there and it was hamburgers and hot dogs. And I was crushed and I've never forgiven the state of Connecticut since.
1: I lived in Connecticut for a year as a kid, and I still haven't forgiven the state of Connecticut either, so maybe that's just a, <laughs> a common experience a lot of people have. All right, question number two, true or false? Baby back ribs are similar to veal in that they are taken from the side of a younger pig well before maturity. False, because you could take baby back ribs anytime. I don't know if they do young
0: pig. I guess you would have a young suckling pig because you have uh, like a whole hog that way, so I'm going to say false.
1: Yes, the answer is it's false. They got their name from being smaller than spare ribs. Okay. All right. Two more very important questions. Oh, sorry. Three, actually. Um, I forgot how many I wrote for this. Uh, true <laughs> or false? Mustard-based barbecue is an abomination.
0: Oh, that's 100% true. Anyone who disagrees is, you know,
1: pretty much Satan incarnate. No, yes, I, it, I yeah. Oh, sorry. It's a fact. Saying, I... so, South, South Carolinians do not know how to make barbecue. So that's, that is a true statement. Yeah, I'll
0: I'll make an exception for Rodney Scott, um, who is a legendary pitmaster, used to be in Hemingway, South Carolina, and now has a place in Charleston and one in Birmingham. And his barbecue is fantastic, but it's not uh, vinegar-based. It's more like eastern North Carolina. uh, Not vinegar-based, it's not mustard-based, it's vinegar-based. And uh, he makes phenomenal barbecue, but that's because he doesn't use mustard like a crazy person.
1: Yeah. So there's a good chance that you just lost, and I just lost a lot of South Carolina listeners or readers. But, you know, it's just, it's just the fact that we're trying to lead them to the truth and they should just get over it. Um, all right. When eating Memphis style ribs, which is better, dry or wet sauce? Well,
0: if you're doing Memphis, you got to go dry rub. Um, that said, there are a lot of people in Memphis that, you know, will get them, you know, wet with sauce on them um i go back and forth like you know you'll have some folks that are you know diehard i only dry rub or i only you know eat ribs
1: with with sauce on them but for me it's just kind of whatever mood i'm in yeah i'm in the same opinion there i think if you got to put sauce on some sort of barbecue it's kind of like putting a steak sauce on a steak Uh, (laughs) all right last question if you uh, were not a regionalist which style of barbecue would you pick over the state of tennessee
0: Kansas city
1: um, and the reason
0: why is the diversity of barbecue there. Like East Texas style barbecue is really popular. So that's like the brisket, the plate with the pink butcher paper, you know, on it that you see uh, in a lot of Instagram pictures and things like that. And that got really popularized by a guy named Aaron Franklin, who I am, you know, he's, his place is my mecca that I would like to um, sojourn to very soon. But um, East Carolina, East Texas is very popular at the moment, but I I prefer... Kansas City because they barbecue everything so like Memphis both Carolinas it's all pork um, you can find brisket you know in both of those places but you know it's not going to necessarily be great um, because they specialize in pork um in Texas you know it's all brisket and everybody's theres about um beef you know it's all about the cow brisket the beef ribs um, but in Kansas City it's this confluence of, of uh, places and it's it's fantastic. I mean, they make great brisket, they make great ribs, they make great pulled pork. Um, and so for me, I, I don't necessarily lean, the style of barbecue sauce I make would be kind of a Kansas City style sauce. So the, the kind of stuff you associate with like the grocery store kind of bottles that you would get. Um, and I lean, like you said, more towards you know less sauce on I meat. but for like just the style approach to barbecue, I like them because like Matthew said, I like meat and they smoke all of it.
1: I'm I'm happy to report that you actually got 100 percent correct on this yes. uh this very scholarly quiz that was put together for for this conversation. <laughs> so in, in Christendom, uh, not to be mistaken with you know a Christian nation, uh, people write about any number of things: theology, ethics, spiritual formation. You write about the intersection of faith and politics. Um, did you, did you think that there was ever going to be a, you know, a more exciting and yet volatile time to write about what appears to be an abundance of stories on this matter? Um, that's a great question.
0: You know, I, when I first started writing about faith and politics, I mean, there were certainly the precursors to, you know, a lot of the stuff you see today. Um, you know, we were writing, uh, you know, about the dangers of get into bed with you know American politics and the church you know for years before Donald Trump showed up. Um, and so in a lot of ways, you know Donald Trump is just the natural evolution or definitely not conclusion because it's still going on but you know the the inevitability of where Christianity in America has been headed um, for a long time, at least since the birth of the moral majority, you know, uh, if not, you know you could argue since the birth of the country um, but but yeah, I mean it's I, I think, The thing that stands out to me is not the corruption of the faith or the blurring of the lines between the evangelicalism and republicanism, um, but how utterly and fanatically devoted people who claim to be followers of Jesus are to a man in particular and a party in general, but a man in particular who in every conceivable way is the antithesis of Jesus. Um, So, I mean, the the wedding of evangelicalism and Trumpism is not a surprise, but the fanaticism of the last four years um, and the hard turn to the right of people who are already to the right, but to such an extreme um, has been um, a bit
1: surprising, at least to me. Uh, Been on the podcast since 2017. Uh, Many lifetimes of things have happened since then. what do you think has been the most peculiar event or story that you've interacted with or written about in the intersection of faith and politics? Hmm.
0: That's a great question. You know, I mean the the big one obviously is Trump. You know, I mean that's the elephant in the room pun intended. I think uh, you know there's no getting around just the bizarreness of all of that. You know, um, you know there's quirky you know weird stories that you know pop up in the church, um, you know, or scandalous things like, you know, not the downfall of Hillsong, but you know, the scandals there and things like that. And Mark Driscoll finally getting this come up and only to rise again. You know, there's there's those sorts of stories that definitely, you know, catch your eye and are interesting for a moment. Um, but it you know, for me it really is this inflection point with Trumpism, like where where does the church go from here? Um, because for me, and you know, I haven't identified as evangelical for a long time even though i still church still attend a church that would identify that way um you know the question i think that that has to be asked is is there a future for evangelicalism because it it, to me it seems like there's here at a moment of new wineskins you know um this whole concept of evangelicalism is is proclaiming the good news. And then in that sense, it extends far beyond, you know, what we would brand evangelicalism and encompasses all of Christianity in America because it all gets lumped together, you know, by folks who are outside the church, you know, who don't make those nuanced distinctions that we love to make inside the church. And so if the church is all about proclaiming good news, and yet the church, whether intentionally or not, you know, whether it's me doing this or not, or it's just my neighbor who I can't stand doing this, I mean the church has become wedded to bigotry and racism, um, marginalization, oppression. I mean, everything that is antichrist, the church has large portions of the church, at least, you know, have embraced. And that's certainly not good news. And so that's why I've, you know, and others for a long time have been being the drum to say, you know, evangelicalism, evangelicalism isn't dying. It's already dead because it has no good news to offer. You know, I mean, there's no one who has no connections to the church who's has no evangelical background, who's looking at the evangelical church right now and saying, you know what, I wanna be part of a movement that demonizes everyone who doesn't think and look at just like me because of who they are. You know, that's just, that's not good news. You know, it's not good news that you show up and they're just chanting about how an election was stolen or how vaccines that could help people are actually a conspiracy or that we need to keep out, you know, everyone that has different skin color or a different religion and anyone who loves different, you know, is going to hell. I mean, the, where where is the good news in that? And so, you know, I think the church needs to, if the church doesn't use this moment um, to do serious soul searching, and I don't just mean like, you know, the people who voted for Trump, I mean, especially the people who position themselves as moderates and be these sort of middle ground folks um, occupying a space that doesn't really exist, but, you know, would push back against, you know, the Trump stuff and say, you know, I love you, but, you know, you gotta stop supporting this guy. You know, those folks need to be doing some serious soul flexion as well, because we're all together in this whether we want to be or not and if the church doesn't have good news to proclaim then it serves no function in the world um and if it serves no function in the world it's irrelevant and and that seems to be where american christianity is heading um as fast as we possibly
1: can Trump's out of the white house but it's it's clear that um overwhelmingly, at least the party is afraid to distance themselves from him, which includes the, the voter base. You know, I, I think one of the positives out of the marriage of Trump and evangelicalism is that people can truly see that the crutch of issue based voting uh, no longer holds water. You know, we vote around cramming the courts, you know, with more conservative judges and around the conversation around Pro life and pro choice. So, what what other positives, maybe, you know, for lack of better terms, do you see potentially coming out of this unfit and unconscionable marriage between Donald Trump and, and evangelicalism?
0: I hope it's that we are forced, because we already have been, especially last summer, but continue to be in a very real and and transformative way forced to confront, you know, the racism and bigotry that are not tangential to American Christianity, but are at at its very core. Um, You know, the reason you see people freaking out about the 1619 Project or the critical race theory um, arguments is that it forces us to look in the mirror and to confront our sin. And we're people who, even though we confess that we're sinners, believe ourselves to be on the, the narrow path, you know, we, We believe that we don't intentionally sin and and being part of systemic, you know, injustice of any kind is not necessarily intentional, Um, because even folks that like yourself or myself that want to fight against it it can still be complicit in it, you know, I, I'm wearing a shirt that was made God knows where by, you know, who knows, uh, sort of people, and in that way I become, you know, complicit in economic injustice, but You know, I I hope that this marriage, you know, has brought the racism that people wanted to pretend was just a few people um, and the bigotry and those sorts of things to the forefront realizing this is who we are, you know, we're a nation, you know, founded on manifest destiny, this idea that God ordained us to drive out the savage, you know, I mean, there's, there's an appalling history that the church has to confront, and pretending that it just, you know, faded away in 1865 or something or 1964 is, is moronic you know and it's it's just not true and so you know i i hope that the voices that we've ignored and pushed to the margins for so long that have started to find a platform have their voices heard in a more significant way um and not just in a a pandering way like it's it's not enough for us to say okay i read this book by this gay author or we had this you know, black preacher come and speak. I mean, we need to listen. And then we need to talk to ourselves. I, I had the privilege of interviewing a, uh, a black food writer that, that I really like. And we were talking about, you know, racial divisions and things like that. And he told me, he's like, yeah, I'm just gonna be blunt. He's like, what we needed, you know, is white people to talk to white people. He's like, you know, you guys can have, you know, folks like us come into your church and preach and talk and things like that, but it's not going to, to you start holding each other accountable that anything's going to change. And and I, you know, I think he hits the nail on the head. It's like, you know, we need to center those voices and we need to hear what they have to say. And um, no matter how painful it may be for us and how embarrassing it may be for us, um, you know, if we really are going to follow the way of the cross, the cross is shame and humiliation, you know, that Christ bears um, on that wooden stake. And so if we're going to follow that, we have to endure that as well and, and accept our complicity in things that we didn't think that we were complicit in. And then we need to turn to each other and we need to do something about it. You know, it's it's not enough just to change your you know profile picture uh, on Facebook or you know say Black Lives Matter. We we need to to actually make fundamental changes um, in, in how we go about being the people of God and for the world. And, and if there's any good to come out of this insanity that's been the last four or five years, um, I hope it's that. I hope it's that we take this opportunity to to do honest. Reflection. And unfortunately, that's one of the hardest things to do in life.
1: We're six months removed from an attempted coup at the U.S. Capitol. And on, on one hand, whoa, this whoa, was whoa. The... That was
0: just a tourist visit. That was just like. <laughs> I mean, it, it, did you not bring smoke grenades and bash in the windows of the Capitol when you were in fourth grade? I
1: no, I, I very distinctly remember going through security the last time I went there and having to throw away. Uh, a really valuable uh, water bottle, re- refillable water bottle, because you know I couldn't just dump it out. It was I, I couldn't bring it inside. So, you know, some days I guess they allow you to bring uh, nooses, zip ties, and um, other forms of ammunition to the capital But I must have missed that day. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> so we're six months removed from that. You know, on one hand, this was the work of militant extremists. On the other hand, they. There were others that joined the fray as a continued um, drinking of the poisonous lies of the narcissistic, pathological liar. What's astonished many, besides the brazen act of insurrection, was the number of Christian flags and banners being wielded by the insurrectionists. I guess, first, were you surprised to see that, you know, at least from the Christian side of things? And second, talk to us about the unsettling truth about Christian nationalism.
0: Yeah, I wasn't surprised at all, and I don't think anyone who you know, has paid much attention to that movement was, because the Christian justification for Trump is that he is this Old Testament king, this uh, Cyrus um, who was you know a Babylonian heathen um, and a sinner and far from perfect, or like King David who you know raped and murdered people, um, but God used him anyway because his heart was pure, or you know some nonsense like that. Um, but in that circle, I mean, Trump is a literally a messianic figure. He may not be Jesus, but he's pretty close on par, you know, and he he's either the figure who's come to, you know, make us one nation under God again, um, or he's this pivotal um, role player in the end times, you know, who is moving the, the embassy back to Jerusalem and is going to usher in, you know, the return of Jesus, and so you know, it's not just like you were saying before, it's not just this, you know, wedge issue, issue. You know, it's not just about abortion or judges. Um, you know, it's about these white folks, you know, conservative white folks who are scared of living in a pluralistic society um, where folks of color, folks, you know, of different sexualities or genders, you know, have equal rights that they do. And, and the idea that they would lose any of their power or privilege is, is terrifying. And so you have this guy come in and you, you know, promise to turn back the clock to, you know, 1950s white supremacist America. And that's very intoxicating for a lot of folks. And then when you bring in the Jesus card, you sanctify all of it and say, well, no, this isn't about politics. You know, this is about my deeply held religious beliefs. You know, and this is about trying to create, you know, the nation that God intended or, or whatever nonsense. And so um, you know, if anything, I was surprised there weren't more, you know, Christian flags or crosses or or what have you. Um, so yeah, it, it wasn't any surprise at all to, to see them or to learn you know, this week that one of the militia groups was ho- hosting a fake Bible study as cover um, you know, for planning out their, the insurrection on the six because you know, they're not dumb or you know, a lot of those folks aren't dumb and they know um, how wedded you know, Trump is to the church and vice versa and that you know they can play that card and, and give them cover because it's worked so successfully for the past few years. But of course, you know, obviously all this is toxic and and detrimental not just, you know, in the sense of uh, political insurrections or overturning the government or things like that. But, you know, Jesus was clear, you know, you can't serve two masters, either one love the one and, and hate the other. And that's exactly what you see is that, and their love for Trump without realizing it, you know, these Trump evangelicals have come to hate Jesus. You know, they would never say that, but it's, you know, like the incarnation of, uh, or the manifestation of Matthew 25. It's them looking around the pearly gate saying, when, when were you hungry? When was, were you thirsty? When were you in prison? And I didn't help you. I definitely would have done done that if I had seen you. And Jesus says, whatever you do, the least of these you did to me. And you know, the Trump evangelicals have been hell bent on attacking the least of these and demonizing and oppressing and locking in cages and starving and exiling them at, at every turn possible because they've given into their basis instincts and sanctified them in the name of in times prophecy or messianic fulfillment or, or whatever you have but the church cannot be wedded to the state because the church is presenting an alternative state you know it's the kingdom of God it's the belief that there can be only one king and that's that's Jesus and there can be only one way of living life and that's in the kingdom of God where the first or last and the least are made great and the poor are made rich and and that does not jive with any form of government, particularly, you know, unfettered capitalism that tramples upon the poor and the least of these in order to enrich a bunch of privileged white guys so that they can go race each other to space for no discernible reason. Um, so yeah, I mean, it is it is absolutely possible to be proud of the country you live in or to be, you know, patriotic in the sense of, I like living in America, because I do. You know, I, I love to travel and I love to see the world, but. You know when you go to italy all you get is pasta and there's terrible hamburgers and no barbecue but in the united states i can go out for lunch and i could get pasta or mexican or thai or vietnamese right and like those things are awesome you know so there's plenty of things to be you know proud about or are grateful for about living in america but um we live in a holy other kingdom we're you know in and for the world but not of the world in the sense of giving our allegiance to anyone other than jesus and so there is no needle to be thread, I think, in this situation. There's no, oh, I can be devote, devoted to, you know, king and country. It's it's king or country um, in, our, in our case, because when we do mix allegiances, when we do try to have our cake and eat it too, we end up with Donald Trump and we end up locking kids in cages and um, letting other children, you know, drown on the beaches of the Mediterranean or, Turning our backs on the poor or ostracizing the marginalized um, in the name of Jesus, because we've let politicians come in and, and hoodwink us or manipulate us or exploit us into, into supporting things that are wholly antichrist. And that's why you can't really be a patriot and a Christian at the same time, and at least not in the sense, like I said, of the Trump patriots, because in the end, you, there's only one. There's only one king at the end of that path, and and it's Antichrist.
1: Looking to learn about pastoral care in order to enhance your skills as a minister, lay leader, deacon, or member of a community? BSK's Pastoral Care Certificate allows students to earn credentials in pastoral care through a short three-course certificate. Students working towards a certificate in pastoral care will integrate knowledge and experience from both courses and experience in order to develop deeper skills in caring for persons who are in crisis and are suffering. The certificate is a great strategy to improve one's care and counseling as a congregational pastor and other congregational leaders. It will prepare persons to serve in chaplaincy settings, whether paid or volunteer, where a degree and professional certificate as a chaplain is not required, such as law enforcement, fire departments, some prisons, and extended care facilities. It requires nine hours graduate credit that may be rolled into a graduate degree program. BSK certificates may be continuing education for those already earned a graduate degree or a starting place for those considering an MDiv. Learn more at bsk.edu backslash options.
0: Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for Conversations That Matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests,
1: You wrote a piece a few years back for Relevant Magazine that's been trending uh, recently um, about patriotism, in which you said, "You may continue to profess allegiance to Jesus, but our lives tell a much different story. One in which the gospel has become supplanted by American political ideologies, such as such that theology seems strangely like a political agenda." For those listening to this, that are doing the good work of spiritual formation, in local churches, what's your advice to them on helping people to see the inconsistent relationship between patriotism and a journey with Jesus? Hmm. That's a good question.
0: Well, mean, yeah, I think the first thing is that, is maybe a point of clarification on my part is that, you know, when I talk about allegiances, I, I'm talking more of like, what is our foundation? You know, what is the lens through which we see life? You know, what is our guiding path? Um, because the reality is all of us are engaged in politics politics is about the city about the polis you know from the greek and all of us are engaged and there are transforming things that we can do through politics because the reality is you know you and i as individuals or even as a church or some large group are not going to be able to create the systemic change that a large government can you know we cannot create social security for example we can't create you know medicare or healthcare for all you know we can't do a lot of things that government is capable of doing. And so there is absolutely a place um, for politics. There has to be, I mean, it, not just has to be, it's just, it's inevitable, you know, there's no escaping it. You know, the issue is when we allow um, a political party or, or a partisan politician or some sort of foreign dogma like Trumpism um, to stand side by side with our profession of faith, that's when the house crumbles. That's when the house can't stand. But if we allow our faith to engage, um, to guide how we engage in politics, then we can do some really important and healing work. I mean, we're not looking to establish the kingdom of God here. You know, this is not a theocracy that we're, we're looking for, but we can vote for candidates. We can take a stand for issues that care for the least of these. You know, we can speak up for the homeless. We can speak up for our LGBT brothers and sisters that, you know, can't buy a cake because some guy decided that, you know, it's against his religion or whatever. Um, you know, we can stand up for our, our Black brothers and sisters who are being literally murdered in the street. Um, all of those things are political, but they're also guided by our faith. I mean, you know, the prime example of this obviously is, is Dr. King, you know, who obviously was deeply political and brought about significant um, changes like the Voting, Rat, uh, Voting uh, Right Act and the Civil Rights Acts of the 60s. Um, he was driven specifically by his faith, you know, Um, to do those things. And so there there is absolutely a place for both, but it's not a balance, if that makes sense. We're not trying to balance our political commitments and our religious commitments. It's that our our commitments to Jesus frame how we engage or shape how we engage in politics. And so, you know, what, what I have leaned into most recently is that we need to stop trying to change the world and start trying to change our world. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, you and I individually are not going to do some sort of you know, transformative Thomas Edison, bring electricity to the people kind of thing. Um, but, you know, we can change our community, you know? And if I'm changing my community and my neighborhood and you're doing the same there, then, then you can create an upswell that makes the sort of dramatic change that we need. And so for me, the politics is something that Christians should absolutely, you know, be involved in. It's just, it's something we have to do with a great amount of care and trepidation that we don't get sucked in and get lost in the same sort of seduction that Trump evangelicals have, because um, you could easily do that on any part of the political spectrum. And so I, I think it's about finding small ways, whether that's, um, you know, voting for uh, a, a bill that will help, you know, homeless folks have housing or people who are experiencing homelessness find housing, or if it's something to, you um, or maybe you do something even bigger, like you run for city council or something so that you help make sure that the, the least of these in your community are looked after and taken care of. You know, I, I think at the end of the day, it's it's about creativity and, and allowing the spirit to work through your imagination. You know, you know the problems or, you know, some of the problems um, that are facing your community. And if you don't talk to the people who are experiencing them, you know, because they will and they can help guide that imag- imagination. They can be the angels unaware, you know, in your life that are helping you to, to see where where your gifts and talents and passions are needed, because they're definitely needed in our community. Um, the question is, you know, what is guiding you know our participation? Is it our devotion to Jesus and and the way of the kingdom, um, or is it power and control and fear? Um, because those things can't live by side, side by side. But if we allow the Spirit to work through a holy imagination and and are guided by the love of Jesus, we can do things in politics that can really make the world or at least our community you know a
1: better place speaking of fear and, and guilt you know as we're recording this there's this continual wrestling uh, from the white community around this concept of critical race theory deconstructing the the incongruent history of America and Christianity is uh, quite painfully eye-opening for a lot of people you know why do you think most people want to avoid it or pretend that they do not see it rather than learning from it?
0: I think it's because we know just how evil and destructive racism is you know I mean even the folks on Fox News you know who are beating the drums of culture war and you know critical race theory and all the other stuff um, as much of white supremacists or as much as white supremacy infuses everything you know that they do they will be, you know, just as um, quick as the rest of us to acknowledge that you know slavery was an evil. You know that it created created quite, um, not quite. That's not the right word. It was indefensively evil. That it was. Well, I think that there are some books on that network that will defend it, but you know they 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 recognize the pain and the nastiness and the awfulness that is racism and oppression and and those sorts of things. And so they naturally and rightfully don't want to be part of it or don't want to associate it. And so. If you met them on the street or if they were friends and you talked to them and pointed to you know, this specific issue like slavery, they'd say, of course, that's bad, that's awful, um, and, and want to see themselves like all of us do, you know, as being on the right side of history or being following the moral path or trying to be a good person. Um, but that's hard to do, even for those of us that are you know, consciously, intentionally trying to avoid you know, complicity in systemic issues. You know, life is hard. You know, and and not screwing up is 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 hard. Um, and the way that our lives are so interwoven with each other and with people that we've never met or never will meet on the other side of the world makes avoiding complicity, you know, really hard. <laughs> to just drive the word home a little bit more. And so, I think part of it is just the fact, simple fact, that it's daunting to have to do that sort of self reflection. Um, you know it's daunting to look at all the different ways that our lives are complicit in systemic injustice of, of all sorts um, it's humiliating and embarrassing to realize the, the depths of our hypocrisy when we were trying not to be hypocrites um, it's scary you know self reflection i think is is the the hardest one of the hardest things that we can do in life um, to just evaluate who we are and 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 what it is we really believe in and what are the things in our lives that we're not seeing? You know, what are we not aware of? What what am what am I doing that's not, you know, reflective of 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 the way of Jesus that I claim to love so much? You know, self-reflection is really, really hard. And so I think there's certainly a part of it that's just taking the easy way out, you know, and not wanting to deal with it and sticking your head in the sand and, and thinking and convincing yourself and really believing, you know, that if you just ignore it, you know, it'll go away because the people who want to ignore it are white. And so it will go away because white privilege, you know, you don't really have to engage in it. And so yeah, I think the ultimate challenge is is rediscovering empathy, you know, is is learning to to actually care about our neighbors. I mean for Jesus, it's the it's the way we decide whether or not, you know, our path is heaven or hell. And like I said in Matthew 25, it's not, you know, did you believe the right things? Did you go to church enough? Did you affirm all the creeds? It's did you care for the least of these? You know, and so there's there's that guilt of recognizing that I didn't, and maybe I even hurt the least of these. And so if we just can ignore that, the guilt will go away. And so I think that's part of it. But I think the other part is we really do lack in empathy because we all live in these micro bubbles. You know, all of our friends look like we do, they believe like we do, they think like we do, Um, or maybe they think a little bit differently, but you know, all our friends are white, you know, all our friends are middle-class or all our friends, you know, um, are evangelical or mainline or whatever the bubble is. And so, you know, we can intellectually assent to the idea of empathy or that these people should be treated, you know, fairly. But if we don't actually get to know them, if we don't actually begin to actually care about their situation in life, we're never going to do anything about it. Um, And so, yeah, it's just, there's no silver bullet to, the situation we find ourselves in, um, but I think the first step, like most things, is the hardest, and it's just learning to care about people as much as you care about yourself. Which somebody said a long time ago in some book—I I don't remember—love others like you love yourself. It sounds vaguely familiar, but I don't know who that was.
1: The Apostle Paul didn't write it, Zach, so it's not as truthful.
0: <laughs> so
1: you know, for for many American Christians. Um, American Christianity has become a caricature of the GOP political stances. That being said, just because they're the loudest on the microphone doesn't make them the only expression of the Christian faith on stage. Absolutely. What do you think it will take for not the prominence of Christianity in American culture to return, but the understanding that this is not the only expression of Christianity there is? Hmm. That's a really good question.
0: Radical changes, like radical changes, which is a a profoundly overused word, but I think of like COVID, you know, we're talking about, you know, things that the the past four years have taught us, you know, I'd, I'd hoped and still hope that maybe COVID teaches us some important lessons just pragmatically about church and all the money that we invest in infrastructure and programming and things that COVID taught us, we really don't need. now. No, don't get me wrong. We need in-person community, you know, community. Like that's just a vital part of the human condition, right? And we press pause on that because we had to, because we didn't want to die because we care about the least of these. But we need, we do need, like I'm a fan of, that sound, sounds really cheesy, but I believe in holy sacred space and carving out space in the world for the people of God to come together and meet and practice sacraments and worship and that sort of thing. But we invest so much money into entertaining ourselves, you know, money that could be redirected in to ways that could quite literally change the world. I, I did an article several years ago, just running the math one time. Um, I, I saw a story about how much it would cost to build affordable housing or free housing for um, people going through homelessness in the United States. And also can compare that with the income of the church, um, not globally, nationally. And if we spent, if we just tithed our tithes, so 10% of what the church takes in every year, the church alone could actually build all of those, those houses um, and, and house people who don't have houses. You know, we could live out in Matthew 25, but that's radical changes, um, radical rethinking of how we do church, because right now, church means you go to this building, you know, once or twice, you know, if you're evangelical, you know, like I grew up in three or four times, maybe a week. Um, but you go do this and we entertain your kids and your teenagers and you and these different programs. And we're going to go on these retreats and have all this other fun stuff. And we're going to teach you some Bible lessons and, you know, then we're going to sing and pray. And and then that's kind of about it. Um, you know, there, I don't want to lean on the early church too much because there's certainly the fallacy of, you know, the idea that the early church was a utopia, that it, it definitely wasn't. But I mean, the early church was people giving everything they have and selling it and giving it to the money to the poor. I mean, their, their primary devotion, you know, was towards making thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so their resources were directed towards caring for others rather than caring, you know, for themselves. And so they certainly had, you know, the love feast uh, as it you know famously is called, you know, they got together obviously for worship, but those were happening in people's houses. Um, and that's not to say we can't have and shouldn't have you know buildings I mean the great cathedrals of Europe are are glorious and beautiful and things like that but um, you know if if we're going to be relevant in the world you know then it's going to take radical rethinking of what we do with our time and resources um, what we care most about you know Shane Claiborne um, likes to say that budgets are a moral document and you know if we're going to become relevant again I think it needs it It may just begin with looking at our church budgets and asking, "Where are we spending our money, and why? And is there something better um, that we could be doing with the gift
1: that God has entrusted us?" Last question: You've been uh, you've been tweeting for over a decade now. You've had many. Don't say that. (laughs) Well, at least a lot of people's work they can't say is is housed. Uh, online that anytime they want they can go find it. Um, you've You've had some uh, pretty epic interactions both with oppositional ideas and fellow sojourners. Um, what has all your interaction taught you about people, uh, the dynamics of spirituality and and what people are craving? Hmm. It's gonna sound cliche, but you know,
0: I mean, authenticity, I think, is is near the top. You know, Rachel Evans used to talk about that a lot, and that was kind of her driving force, I think, in, in a lot of her writing and her work, you know, is being authentic, you know, and not trying to create this persona. So, like, with Rachel, like, you know, who you saw on the internet was who you saw, you know, in person, um, you know, and I hope that's the case to me. I, I'm not as... Um, maybe combative in person, you know, in the sense of like, I look at a lot of stuff online as work, you know, and so like, I don't wanna talk about work, you know, in my downtime, um, but I'm, you know, everybody's funny, maybe funnier, better looking than my profile picture. Um, you know, the, there's uh, hopefully some authenticity, you know, into what I do because I think, you know, that's what is at the heart of a lot of our longings is, is an authentic and honest, you know, way of life you know, it, we, have got all these, you know, branded influencers and celebrity pastors and all this other stuff that looks perfect and just doesn't reflect how we live our own lives or the lives that we've experienced. And so, yeah, I think there's that, the, the connectedness, you know, I, I think you can't overstate that. Like we talk about a lot about our friends in real life and our friends online. And, you know, the reality, I think a lot of us need to especially, you know, older folks like myself and my parents' age need to grapple with is that, you know, our friendships online are real. You know, those, those are real connections, even if they haven't been embodied, you know, over coffee um, in person, you know, that, that's a real connection. And I think the church would do well to um, invest more time and energy into that aspect of, of ministry, um, of the online world and, and the connected relationships that, that are born there and that, that thrive there. And then I think there's also an element of egalitarianism, not not the, the marriage debate, um, but like the ability to just participate in the conversation, to have a voice, you know, to not have to earn a seat at the table by jumping through a bunch of you know political hoops or or whatever, but just by, by speaking up, you know. Um, I mean, the internet's certainly not a meritocracy, and there's all sorts of awful you know things about it. Um, but even some of those things can have their silver lining in the sense of um, after, man, it's really depressing that I've been on Twitter for 10 years. Um, but after, you know, blogging and writing and, and those sorts of things for so long and being so public, you know, you, you build some pretty thick skin. Um, if you don't, you know, you get, you, you get out of it pretty quickly. Um, but the it, it's helped to learn not to care what strangers think. Um, that seems a little broad maybe, but let's say not to care about the trolls, you know, and, and not to invest so much energy into people who, you know, just leave hateful comments on your Facebook page or things like that. Um, you know, there's certainly some helpful lessons, you know, in that madness, but you know, I think at the end of the day, you know, what the internet provides. And I think what makes it so attractive is, is that sense of community, you know, that that we talked about before you know, especially this past year, when we haven't been able to experience that community in person, you know, the internet's thrived even more, you know, or social media of, of allowing us to be together when we can't be together, you know, and so I think that the participation, the authenticity, the honesty, all that comes together in this basic human imagio Dei that we have, I mean, if we, we believe in the Trinity, it's not just that we believe in this weird abstract theological concept is that we believe that at the very heart of God is a being in communion, that God is community, and that we are created to be in community. And as flawed and imperfect and weird and terrible and great as the internet can be, you know, it it's a community. And I, and I think that's what draws us to it for for good and for ill. Um, but it's community, and it's a unique community, and, and one that as a church, I think we need to take more seriously than than just you know building up websites and creating content and and you know tweeting quotes from you know the pastor's sermon. We need to look at creative ways for the church to be in and for the
1: world on the internet too. If you want to stay connected with Zach, check out his work at Zachhunt.com, follow his musings on social media, including his righteous views on barbecue. Um, all apologies to our South Carolina listeners. If I want a mustard, I'll have a hot dog. Of course, uh, go out and purchase Unraptured wherever books are sold. Uh, Zach, thank you for making the time to have this conversation. We are grateful for your consistency on calling us to follow Jesus, even when it doesn't fit into our socio-political worldview.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me. I always enjoy the chat.
1: This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, Theology.mercer.edu to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAvee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.